Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about 40, got about 700 bucks a month. And so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's why Sam likes my work. Uh, he wrote this after reading one of my pieces on the interwebs. He said, The most profoundly insightful, important, and clearly explained vision for a sustainable peer-to-peer post-capitalist future enabled by blockchain is outlined by Reese's work. Woo, thank you, Sam. That is the goal. Um, so today's episode is with Primavera de Filippi, and she has the super awesome background. Um, and the exciting thing that we talk about today is she just released a book um, called Blockchain and the Law that she co-wrote with Aaron Wright from Consensus and Open Law. Uh, it's really a truly outstanding book about how blockchain technology affects regulation. Um, and there's a couple key pieces that I just want to pull out, um, both takeaways from the episode and takeaways from the book. Um, one is in the book and in the episode, uh, they do such a good job of understanding the history of internet regulation um, because it was just you know it's 90s early 90s 2000s people had the same thoughts around the internet where it's like oh man this is this international supranational kind of thing how are we going to regulate it um so looking at what was done there and applying it to the blockchain uh is a lot of what they do um and they're really good at pulling out and primavera and Aaron are really good at pulling out um pieces from the past like uh, for example lawrence lessig's pathetic dot theory um that they can then apply to uh, blockchain regulation so that's really cool. Um, the other thing that we talk about is coming from this perspective of the affordances of blockchain technology. And I'm using affordances in kind of like the Zeynep Tufeki term, where we say, hey, what does the technology allow us to do? Um, and blockchain has various affordances, but, you know, there are things like transparency, the decentralized nature of it, which makes it kind of harder, harder to regulate, uh, the immutability, um, and also autonomous agents. And one exciting thing, and by autonomous agents, I mean like smart contracts that are required to execute. Um, and one thing that we talk about in the episode is one of uh, Primavera's uh, experiments and projects that she's done is this thing called the Plantoid, which is a fun name. And it is a physical cypherpunk-looking machine plant um, that Primavera started. And what it does is it... um, So it's a physical metal device uh, that has a light in it. And it asks people for, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum donations. um, And you give it to it because it's beautiful art. And once it gets enough of those donations, then it sends out kind of a request for proposal and artists propose new plantoids. And then uh, essentially through a DAO style voting mechanism, the vo- the funders vote on which uh, designer should actually create um, the new plantoid. So it's this kind of it's a physical plant that actually self-replicates itself, um, which is pretty cool. And uh, the interesting thing, though, from like a law perspective is that if you're a regulator and you're like, oh, man, you know, and you win some lawsuit against a plantoid that did something wrong, and you want to get the money inside the plantoid, you can't because it's in a smart contract. Um, and so 
this is something that uh, Primavera and I talk about, which are these, what I like to call, like, crypto-international waters. And these are things that exist outside nation-state control, um, or what they call in the book these emancipated devices, devices that are free um, from kind of meat space from this traditional uh, world and only exist in the cryptosphere. So, um, yeah, that's just a single example of kind of a bunch of the different affordances that we talk about um, that blockchain has that then affect regulation in various ways. And we cover a lot in this episode, but uh, we definitely don't cover all that the book has to offer. I really, I really did like the book, especially from kind of an intermediate, advanced uh, blockchain crypto enthusiast perspective. Um, and there's a bunch of things that, uh, a whole host of topics that we don't even cover in the episode that you should buy the book for. And these are things like talking about blockchain neutrality, kind of like net neutrality, talking about algocratic governance, where you govern with algorithms, um, other pattern matches from the history in the past, like Lawrence Lessig's end-to-end theory, things like systemic risk of not having clearinghouses in centralized places like that, that are kind of insurance, Um, property rights management, which is like digital rights management, but for IoT devices, there's a whole lot in the book that's that's really quite fascinating, and so I'd recommend it. Again, it's called Blockchain and the Law. Um, And then one final note for this episode is we also talk about DAOStack, which is a governance platform, uh, a DAO governance platform that Primavera is an advisor for. So we talk a little bit about her take on DAOStack and governance. So with that, I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode with Primavera de Filippi. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world, and so we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes, and today we're focusing on Series A, Macro Systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And today, I'm very happy to introduce Primavera de Filippi to the show. Primavera is a permanent researcher at the National Center of Scientific Research in Paris, a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School, an advisor to DAOSTAC, and the co-author of a recent book, Blockchain in the law. Primavera, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, excited for you to be here. Also, you don't sleep. <laughs> you know, four things in this. Um, too many, too many things in your in your bio. Um, so let's start. We're going to primarily concentrate on um, your book today, which I just it just came out last week. Um, and it's written by you and Aaron Wright. Um, and uh, I just finished it. So could you just kind of give a overview on on the book, Blockchain and Law, what do you guys kind of uh, talk about? What are your primary theses in the book? Uh, sure. So, I mean, the book is really an attempt of actually explaining the interplay between uh, blockchain and uh, the law, the regulations. Um, and basically, the underlying thesis is that we are we are moving one step further from the, um, the traditional code is law model that was identified by Lawrence Lessig um, in the sense that in the in the traditional code that we have today in traditional platform, online platform on the internet, um, there is always an operator, there is a centralized entity that is controlling that code. And so it is true that the code is actually acting as law in the sense that it is actually d- dictating what people can or cannot do on a particular platform. The difference today with the with the blockchain is that um, not only the the code actually has the effect of the law, but there is no longer this centralized operator that actually controls the code. 
right? So on the internet, it's quite easy to regulate code because you can always regulate that particular operator, which is creating and administering this platform in order to then uh, require specific technical arrangement so as to eventually indirectly regulate how people will interact on those platforms. Whereas when we move into the blockchain systems, then because of the disintermediation that this entails, you can create those new technical platforms, which are, however, uh, which also have the whole of the, the same functions as law in the same way as code does, but that there is no longer this obvious intermediary that you can actually regulate mm -hmm. in order to dictate the way in which the code will look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, difficult because you can traditionally regulate someone like ISPs or platforms or whatever. But with the new blockchain world, it's like, oh, man, if something bad happened, um, the blockchain is on, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is on tens of thousands of computers. It was one person who did it, but maybe it was a smart contract on Ethereum and like someone kind of wrote it. But then someone else, um, it was triggered by some random like IoT event or whatever. It's so, like, who, who should be at fault for these things? Um, that is a difficult question. So given that kind of centralization versus decentralization thing, you guys kind of bring up this concept in the book called uh, Lex Cryptographica. Um, could you tell me more about what that means and how that informs the regulation environment? Yeah. So, I mean, so Lex Cryptographica is obviously uh, inspired from uh, Lex Mercatoria first, which was the law that was developed by the merchants. Uh, which was basically some some custom and some some specific uh, norms that were developed in order to facilitate uh, transactions between different merchants, and then um, and then with the internet there was this new emergence of Lex Informatica, which is uh, basically code is law, and uh, in the case of the centralized network and, and in particular in the case of public blockchain, because this is pretty much the focus of the book, then we can see this new emergence of a new kind of, uh, uh, of rules and regulation, which is dictated by those cryptographic systems. And, um, the, the interesting thing of, of Lex Cryptographica, which is pretty much the same with Lex Informatica, by the way, um, is that it has this uh, dual uh, dual age function, right? So on the one hand, you can use these technologies in order to actually create your own set of norms and rules that a particular community will abide to. At the same time, you can also use it in order to uh, achieve a particular regulatory objective. So this is more in the sense of like regulatory technology. So you can see how because of those systems that are disintermediated, decentralized, and to some extent autonomous, uh, on the one hand, we can develop models that actually are existing outside the, like, of, the, of the purview of the law, those kind of illegal systems. But at the same time, you can also implement the law through those systems and actually have these, uh, the benefit of the self-executing um technology that provides the blockchain in order to actually make sure that the law will actually be enforced in a particular manner. And so the, the whole discussion that we have within the book is uh, uh, for very different uh, types of, uh, for different sectors, for different verticals and so forth, um, to which extent is blockchain technology 
being used as a way to escape from regulation versus as a way to actually um, incorporate legal rules into those technological framework. Mm -hmm. And and it's quite clear how, how pretty much it can go both ways and it is actually moving in both directions. And uh, depending on what are the interests of the players that are using this technology, they will use it for one particular application or for the other. Mm, yeah, I like that. Mm, there's a lot of delicious stuff in there. First, the thing that, um, and one thing that I really liked about the book was um, you gave, and you were talking about, did you call it Lex Merchant something? <laughs> Lex Mercatoria. Lex Mercatoria, that, and then Lex Informatica, that compared to Lex Cryptographica. And those all, the book has this really great, and you guys, I think you did a great job of going through history and saying, hey, here's what it was like to regulate things way back in the day or in internet times, and here's how that might pattern match into kind of this new blockchain world. Um, so I love that part of things. And then what you were talking about with the um, using the essentially the affordances of uh, blockchain in order to people can use it either to like dodge um, existing regulation or escape them in various ways, or um, you can kind of use the blockchain itself. Um, would you say that this is your concept of code as law, um, where you say, hey, we're going to use the blockchain itself to to perform regulatory actions? Is that correct? That that's a, the, the term code as law that you're trying to use there? Yeah. So, I mean, the distinction between code is law is when you actually use code in order to uh, in order to regulate, in order to uh, implement specific affordance or constraints. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, but but those those are private, right? Those are actually designed by a particular platform in order to implement uh, their own policies, as opposed to code as law, which is when you actually take existing legal rules and you try to bake them into a particular technological framework so that the code actually represents a particular implementation of a legal rule. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is all the question as to is it actually possible to transpose legal rules which are written in natural language, which have uh, a specific ambiguity and flexibility, and uh, is it possible to transpose them into the strict language of formal code without actually changing some of the functionalities or some of the of, of the flexibility of these of those rules? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you? take a normal contract and turn it into a smart contract and is that possible and, and is that good and is that bad and, and things of that variety um so kind of going back to that that point about history um how i mean what i would love to to kind of dive into for a sec is you know i think for a lot of people that exist in the blockchain land especially because a lot of them are younger um i know i am only 26 years old um and so i don't really know what it was like when the internet was being uh regulated in the early 90s and late 90s and early 2000s or whatever and we're seeing other new kinds of regulation come up as we've seen the massive google amazon facebook aggregators um and antitrust laws and you know gdpr and things like that um how, could you give us kind of a quick overview on, uh, before we talk about how this kind of plays in with the blockchain land, could you give us kind of maybe a quick um, analysis or overview of how the internet was regulated um, in its early kind of days to, to kind of, you know, couch us in some context for understanding that for blockchain? 
Well, I mean, if you look at the at the history of uh, internet regulation, it's actually you can see very similar narrative in the sense that at the beginning there was this kind of wonder as to like how are we actually gonna regulate such a transnational network um, in which you know every individual state cannot really exert its own sovereignty over the whole network, and um, and then and then there was those questions like are we moving into this kind of like uh, anarchy or you know how do we actually establish rules into this cyberspace right um, and then it became quite clear uh, at some point that well it is true that it is a transnational network but there are some nodes that are quite incidental to the way in which this network works and this is on the one hand the ISPs so you can obviously regulate the ISPs in order to uh, you know, get them to block traffic, uh, get them to monitor and to analyze what what is the the communication that are going on into their network and so forth. Uh, at the same time, there is like the 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 online service providers, um, which are creating those platforms and which are enabling people to interact with each other. And so, the people interacting on those platforms obviously are subject to the rules of the platform. And as long as we can identify those platform operators, and because those platform operators are incorporated into a particular um, physical territory, which is subject to the law of a particular countries, then it is possible to to regulate um, those actors in order to then regulate the the way the platform will be built and therefore the way in which people can interact on those platforms. Um, so essentially, the the internet, which initially was seen as this uh, powerful tool for uh, you know individual emancipation and freedom of expression and so forth, uh, over the years, as it has become uh, more obvious who are the main intermediaries and who are the choke points on this network, then it has become increasingly regulated. And today. Uh, I guess the internet has become actually quite a powerful tool of regulation, of surveillance and of control, uh, but from governments which actually regulate uh, private operators, but also by the private operators themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because we had intermediaries, we were able to, at the beginning it was confusing, <laughs> likely. Um, well, yeah, where, where should we do this? If this is this global um, transnational network, what should we do? And then it was like, okay, lots of the traffic traffic goes through ISPs. We can regulate them for some things. Traffic, uh, especially as traffic went more and more on these like big platforms, we can start to regulate them. And then the people who are operating on those platforms, we can start to regulate them given the rules of those platforms and ISPs. Um, and as you say now, it's also one where the, um, those affordances that were kind of the, the governments have learned um, and governments and people and whoever have, have learned how to uh, use it as a, the internet as a powerful tool for surveillance and things of that variety as well. Um, so then when we take that kind of mindset of like, okay, here's how things worked in the traditional internet days, let's kind of move into the blockchain land. Um, and you talked a little bit about the, how it's difficult because of the decentralized nature of blockchains Um yeah, how do you see kind of this playing out um, with in blockchain land? How will it be regulated, um, and why is it? How is it similar or different from internet times? Well, so the difference is that the those uh, those smart contracts or those platforms do not actually require uh, centralized operators. Mm-hmm. 
um, and therefore this intermediary is no longer easy to identify, right? On the other hand, um, one should also not just jump to the conclusion that uh, because there is no intermediary operator that is actually managing that particular network or that particular smart contract, then there is actually no operator. There is no choke points, right? And um, if we look indeed at like the different layers that uh, um, are contributing to dictating the way or influencing the way a blockchain system can work, we can see that, well, first of all, the blockchain is actually operating on top of the internet, mm -hmm. right? And so we cannot forget about the internet layer. And uh, in the same way as the ISPs actually have quite a significant power in deciding which packet will go through, uh, whether to prioritize a particular type of packets rather than another one, etc., with all the net neutrality debate and so forth, we can quite easily imagine that an ISP could actually intervene. And in the same way as you have ISP that are actually uh, blocking or slowing down uh, traffic that is intended for peer-to-peer -peer networks, they could as well do that potentially for a particular blockchain-based network if they can actually do through deep packet inspection, they can actually identify that those packets are actually directed through this network. And then there is, uh, of course, at the so this is like the underlying basic infrastructure on which the blockchain operates. And then at the blockchain layer itself, there are actually a lot of actors which have a predominant role and which can actually have an impact in the way in which those, uh, those specific uh, network can actually properly operate, right? So one is obviously we have all the miners uh, and the mining pools, which are quite easy to identify and which are obviously responsible for uh, building those blocks. And uh, it's, uh, it's quite possible to, to imagine that uh, a government might actually say to a particular mining pool, which is on their own territory, that some transactions should actually not be incorporated into a block. And therefore, we can actually reintroduce a form of censorship within these decentralized blockchain-based networks. Um, in the same way, we can actually have like um, specific rules towards the way in which the miner will collectively agree to, to, to incorporate or to interact with some transactions. So for instance, even if it's not the government itself, uh, if it happens that there are some uh, decentralized applications, some smart contracts, which are actually regarded as being illegitimate or illicit, on the one hand, the government can say to all, to the miners or to the mining pool that they should not process those transactions, but also coming from the community itself, from the miners, might also decide by their own that they actually would like to discriminate against those criminal decentralized applications and therefore not process those transactions into a block. And then even further, we can actually have the market that actually intervene. And we can see, for instance, that perhaps one particular blockchain-based network or one particular dApp on top of this blockchain-based network or particular actors interacting on the, on the network might actually come into agreement, uh, you know, some off-chain agreement uh, with some large mining pools in order to, for instance, speed up uh, the inclusion of certain transactions at the expense of others, right? So we can see how we have 
if we go back to the former Lessig uh, visions of like those four forces that are potentially affecting uh, the the way in which an individual can behave, which is on the one, one hand, we have the laws, obviously, and then we have the social norms, then we have markets, and then we have the architecture or the code. And those four forces, they also apply into the blockchain space, except that we need to look at the new actors that are actually being affected by those forces. So it's no longer the centralized online operator, but it's the ISP, it's the miners, it's the validators, uh, potentially it's like the exchanges, or like all those players that are actually acting as a choke point to the network. And uh, whether, whether they will actually comply with the regulation depends obviously on the extent to which a government can actually impose their own rules upon them. So the difference is, of, of course, that there is a larger amount of actors that somehow need to be coordinated in order for a regulation to actually become possible. Because I can regulate the miners, but I also need to regulate all the exchanges. At the same time, I need to make sure that the validators, which might not be miners, are also complying uh, with the same regulations, right? And if there is one of those different actors that are actually not complying, then there is the risk of a fork, right? So in order to actually have the regulation applies to the world blockchain network without actually triggering an actual forking of the network, then it, it's, much, it's much more difficult than on the existing online platform on the internet because there is a variety of intermediary choke points that actually need to all be regulated in a similar manner in order for the law to actually apply. Yeah, so this is to say it gets more complicated now. <laughs> um, the, in that theory that you're talking about was the, which is a funny name, the pathetic dot theory from Lawrence Lessig, um, where you can, when you're trying to regulate something, you can regulate, and especially the internet or blockchains, it's with laws, social norms, markets, or the actual architecture of the code. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit Shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. Um, and like you say there at the end, I think an important piece of this is um, this ability for people to exit the system um, through forking or what have you, or by you know using blockchain-based um, financial incentives to create new systems um, where you say, hey, if you're a government that's trying to regulate all these various actors, the ISPs, the miners, the validators, the exchanges, then... If you go too hard, then the people might say, you know what, this is too much regulation and we want to just create our, we want to fork and create our own new network. Um, and for me, that feels, correct me if I'm wrong, but does that feel, that feels to me like it makes the job more difficult for regulators because they can't just regulate and then we don't have any other kind of options to go to in this blockchain-based reality given forks and given blockchain-based financial incentives, it might be easier to kind of run away and still escape from the regulation. Do you kind of agree with that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's yes uh, to some extent, but the I think the the main issue is not that you can just run away and fork. Mm. It's just that you like it's it's not running away and creating a new network. It's just the the regulation is actually trying to affect to change the way in which the network operates. Mm-hmm. But unless you can actually cover uh, and influence all the different stakeholders mm-hmm. and actors of that network, then you might actually, it is through the regulation that you create a fork because you're actually changing the way in which a network is operating, but some people might actually not follow. And therefore the fork is more about the people that actually do not want to abide by the, by the additional rules that are being implemented. Yeah. 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 And we'll see that we've seen that already with um, when these internal communities will fork in various ways uh, with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic or Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And then we'll. Yeah, like the, the DAO example is a, is a perfect example, right? So, regardless of whether that was, I mean, that was a, that was a self governance solution in some way, it was not imposed by a third party regulatory authority, but the idea was that the community somehow came to a decision that uh, the Ethereum protocol had to be changed in order to uh, in order to remediate from the harm that had been done through the DAO attack. Mm-hmm. But the people that actually did not agree with that regulatory solution, uh, they just stayed with the old model, with the old protocol, and that was what the Ethereum Classic fork is. And now there is this similar question around the parity bug. Yep. So are we going to recover the funds that are frozen within the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and what is the what is the procedure that needs to be followed in order for such a decision to be made, right? Because there is no, on the one hand, there is no external regulatory authority that will dictate this. At the same time, internally within, within the network, there is no formal or informal governance structure that can actually lead to uh, to to figure out what is the right process to follow in order to decide whether or not to modify the protocol. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's both nothing coming in from the outside, and um, it is, and this is up for debate in various ways. But it's not like there's a clear step by step process that says, okay, something happened. Here's the process that we'll go through in order to determine if you know the parity team could should get their money back or what have you. Um, so um, with that, we've talked a lot about this kind of global side of blockchain and how the disintermediation makes things kind of awkward, and how like the transnational nature of it can make it awkward. For, for who you regulate. Um, some of the aff- other affordances of blockchain are like the transparent, you, and you go into, when I think about the book that you wrote, it is, it's essentially taking some of these affordances, the, the global nature, the fact that it's, that, um, that things are transparent when they're on the blockchain, um, that things must happen when they're on the blockchain, like with smart contracts, um, essentially taking those core axioms or concepts or affordances and then pushing them into um, different realms and saying, okay, when we take this transparency view, what happens when we put it in the financial market or what happens when we put it in organizations or whatever? Um, So are there other, I guess the question I want to ask is, are there other affordances of blockchain besides um, transparency or the kind of fact that things must happen or the global nature um, that that are in addition to to those things that we need to think about? Um, 
I mean, basically, that's that's actually that's pretty much. The, I mean, the blockchain is just this decentralized database, and then uh, which has particular features such as transparency, um, almost immutability, uh, incorruptibility, and and resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can build whatever you want on top of those. Um, so you can you can create uh, better auditability of system. You can create. Um, smart contracts that are self-executing and that uh, will always comply with the particular uh, with the particular uh, code lines of code that have been embedded into it. So you have this guarantee of execution, which is also something quite important. Mm-hmm. Um, in some way, you can you can kind of like uh, categorize perhaps the different applications that can be built on the blockchain with like one that is the basic financial applications. So cryptocurrency and so forth, which is basically taking advantage of this particular decentralized ledger as a way to uh, update accounts mm-hmm. in a way that cannot be cheated upon. Uh, then there is the second category, which is more about the registries. So it's using blockchain technologies as a way to record information uh, and basically to identify who has done what and when in a way that cannot actually be uh, repudiated and that cannot be manipulated. And then the third part is obviously the more complex and sophisticated system, which is like the smart contracts, which is creating actual applications which are not controlled by anyone and therefore cannot be influenced or stopped. And that come with this guarantee execution that whatever has been codified into it will be executed in that way. Yeah. So those are like the three macro categories that we can come up with through by sim- by simply using these decentralized ledger technology. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I think that and you said something also up there, which was that hey, in addition to the transparency or the guaranteed ex- execution piece, there's also that um, immutability and kind of resiliency piece where you the not both things must happen and you can't go back in time on things. Um, and so one thing that I'd love to talk about for a, a quick bit here is um, this idea. When you think about there's the there's the financial side, there's the registry side, and then there's this this smart contract things can't be controlled side. Um, and you guys bring up there's lots of um, issues when you start to say oh um, when there's guaranteed execution that creates for some awkward scenarios for for regulatory frameworks. Um, and let's actually start on talking about that with this idea of this plantoid. So could you talk about what this plantoid is and how it's a, an example of this guaranteed execution? Yes, yeah, so the plunder is actually a way to illustrate um, a DAO. Yeah. So, so you have the smart contracts, and then whenever a smart contract is designed a particular way, it has to be like fully autonomous, so that there is no one that can actually can control the smart contract. Um, then it is called somehow a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO. And um, so I spent a lot of time trying to explain DAOs to various people, uh, including many lawyers and so forth. And it's, it's really, it's really difficult. I mean, now it's, now people are more aware of this, but back, back in 2015, it was quite, um, quite of a novel concept. So the plantoid is kind of an artistic, uh, experiment to illustrate in the physical world, uh, what, like, or to illustrate uh, the the functioning of a DAO through a physical piece, right? Um, so the plantoid is a blockchain-based life form, 
um, which means that it's uh, it's a particular algorithmical entity which is autonomous in the sense that it cannot be controlled by anyone. Uh, it is self-sufficient because it can uh, require it can collect all the resources that it needs for its own survival. And then, of course, like every other uh, life form, it is also capable of reproducing itself. And um, and the way it works is basically it's just like this uh, metallic sculpture of a plant. So it's like an android version of a plant, a plantoid, uh, that collects funds through cryptocurrencies. And then whenever it has collected sufficient amount of funds, it, uh, it opens a call for bids so that people can submit propositions as to how they envision to create a next version of the plantoid. And then whoever has actually participated into the funding of that plantoid that is reproducing itself, they have uh, ability to vote on the various propositions that have been submitted. And then once a particular uh, solution, proposition has been, has been identified, then the, the plantoid will then use the funds that it has collected so far in order to hire uh, the author of that proposition, so a, a new artist, essentially, to create a replica of itself. And uh, the idea with this is really to just show how, how it is possible to actually use this concept of a DAO in order to, well, in this case, it's for an artistic uh, 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 creation, but just to actually coordinate people around the making of something. Yeah, I think it's so cool. And I actually didn't know until I um, Googled it earlier today that you were the, when I read the book, I was like, oh my God, this is cool. But you were the, actually the creator of it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Or you're at least in a lot of the pictures online. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's this crazy, it's like a little bot. um, And and if you look online and go to, you know, uh, if you just Google plantoid, you'll find it. And there's all these pictures, these beautiful pictures of this plant. And as you say, it's kind of awesome and i think it's a you did a smart thing by making a a physical representation and then it makes it easier to say look we have this physical representation people pay it um and then it then you know solicits um various people various projects and various submissions and then um the voters vote on which ones it should do and then the plantoid itself actually pays them um so it's it's kind of weird it's i feel like it's one of the first times that we've been paid by robots to do stuff um <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, it is, and, and I, I think that there's another when you, when it's in this beautiful plantoid form, it's kind of nice. It's like a nice little internet, cool cypherpunk um, kind of thing. But could you kind of tell, talk about how the plantoid is maybe an example of um, like no one really wants to regulate the plantoid. It's like a beautiful little plant uh, metal thing on the internet. Tell me how people are thinking about how the, how the underlying concepts behind the plantoid might be difficult in the future as governments try to regulate DAOs and DAO-like things. Yeah, I mean, but the, I mean, it it just goes back to the to the, to the traditional issue around those uh, autonomous systems is that um, there is a distinction between the legal world and the crypto world, right? Mm-hmm. So. And the plantoid actually illustrated nicely, but it's just a generic issue that, that we encounter in every case, which is, um, so for instance, property rights, right? They are defined by the laws and, uh, therefore they also can be taken away through the law, right? So, uh, 
the the government can decide to seize the property of someone if it is considered that this property has been stolen or has been acquired illegitimately. Um, which means that the, the recognition of the property right is dependent on the legal system. When we move into the crypto world, uh, we now have digital assets and uh, those assets are actually defined by the code and therefore they can only be transferred or taken away through the code, which means that to some extent there is a discrepancy between ownership in the legal sense and technical ownership of an asset. And uh, in the case of the plantoid, for instance, uh, it is the way the way the smart contract is designed, it is actually impossible to take away the funds of the plantoid, even if there was uh, a legal suit against the plantoid for whatever reason, and it was held that uh, you know, the plantoid have to pay some damages. And the plantoid, everybody knows that the plantoid has that particular funds into its account. But because the smart contract has not been codified to actually account for any external entity to actually decide uh, to transfer those funds, except within that particular procedure of selecting a proposal and funding that proposal, then um, the legal system does not really have much power, uh, even if legally we can say that the plantoid might not own those funds, technically there is actually no way to take them away from the plantoid. And so the, the interesting thing, and this is like this is a general problem, is that we are actually entering into this concept of like crypto law or crypto property um, where the traditional legal system has a hard time actually affecting or influencing um, things that happen within this Lex Cryptographica framework. Yeah, I think that that's a great example and, and, and very clearly said where it's like, look, oh, the plantoid accidentally did something wrong or whatever. It like hurt somebody in the real world or something or it needed to have. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, there are damages that it needs to pay. Well, it's like, hey, we can't make it pay. <laughs> um, and as you say, you kind of have to work within Lex Cryptographica and say, hey, we need to, if you wanted it to pay, you might need to like have it pay through the DAO voting style system, you know, um, or so it would be, it would be a very awkward uh, kind of thing because yeah, you can't, yeah, it is um, smart contracts make for that kind of execution that uh, yeah, it's, it, it can only happen in one way and there's not, you know, loose room around the edges for, for different things. Um, so with that, I mean, so We'll talk more about the book at the very, very end, but um, it's, uh, as you can see, there's a lot of different ways based off of those core underlying things that Primavera and I have talked about. It kind of pattern matches into a bunch of different worlds. And then when you think about how um, governments and other kind of big institutions want to actually work with it and regulate it, um, it makes it it makes it more complicated, but also um as Primavera said, there's lots of different kind of choke points and stakeholders that you can kind of work around um, and and uh, work with those four different uh, pathetic dot theory things to kind of incentivize the system or regulate the system uh, for good or what have you. So with that, um, we're going to transition into, um, for just a couple minutes here, into one of Primavera's other things, which is DAOStack, um, which is a platform, um, essentially a, a platform to build DAOs. Um, so Primavera, could you 
give us kind of an overview on DAO Stack, um, maybe why you're an advisor, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, DAO Stack is a is a is a long project, and uh, it's a it's an integration of many many different. Um, experiments and attempts as actually creating, you know, a, an easy framework in order to help people build DAOs uh, without having to start from scratch all the time. So the the usual analogy is a little bit like the WordPress for DAOs. So in the same way as today, we don't need to start and code website from scratch, we can just use platforms like WordPress in which we just have different modules and different templates, and we can just plug them together in order to actually have a website done very easily. And uh, by leveraging the benefits of this open ecosystem of different people providing different plugins and different templates for the for the platform, then the idea with DAO stack is to do the same thing, but for DAOs. So instead of going into like all the different layers and building uh, a DAO from scratch, knowing that it's actually quite difficult and quite dangerous because the code needs to be very, very secure. Then DAO stack just provides those basic building blocks and uh, anyone can just plug plug into the framework and uh, anyone can provide new modules that can be added into this open repository and then eventually, as time goes, then there is kind of like a Lego with more and more pieces that are actually being provided. And then people can just take those Lego pieces and put them together and create their own DAO. Yeah, that is that will be an exciting new future um, as we get these easier, like, uh, yeah, drag and drop kind of DAO, DAO platforms. And like you said, it'll be... It's nice when um, the ecosystem can use code or widgets or whatever that um, have been tested and that have been used in the past that you know, so you don't have to spin one up yourself, especially because we don't want more things like the DAO in the future. Um, Instead, you want to use something that is already shown to be secure or private or what have you. Um, So kind of thinking about DAO stack and and how you... um, overlap with it how do you see something like blockchain-based governance evolving you got dow stack you have aragon you have things like colony and what have you um where do you see this ecosystem going in the next couple years um i mean i hope it's going in a direction in which we actually do identify a proper governance structure (laughs) (laughs) um i think it's quite it's quite great like up to a few years ago there was very little discussion about uh, blockchain-based governance as to like how do we actually design new governance systems. The way I see it is that today, if we look at most of the DAOs um, or the blockchain-based network that have been developed so far, there is this strong tendency towards creating market-based governance structures. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because uh, this is pretty much the one thing we know that is decentralized And uh, because you create a decentralized infrastructure, we also want to plug on top of it a decentralized governance structure. And because we know the market-based system, then that's what we use. And the problem is that uh, oftentimes this actually goes against the ethos of decentralization because it's quite easy uh, for a market that is actually not being protected to actually evolve into an oligopolistic market in order to concentrate 
with like a few powerful actors that actually have a lot of power. And um, so my my hope and my vision, and this is what motivates me to to work uh, with Dalstack, is uh, that we actually need to come up with alternative governance structure, which are also decentralized, but which are not at least not exclusively based on market-based dynamics so that we can actually provide, uh, well, something that does not look like a plutocracy, but maybe more like a meritocracy um, in which we actually maintain the decentralization of the governance um, without actually the cost and the, the usual manipulation that can happen uh, into a market-based system. Mm, exciting. Um, so looking to move away from market-based systems and towards more kind of merit-based systems. Um, well, with that, uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, Primavera, thanks again so much for coming on the show today. No worries. Thanks yeah, and I think, so um, they can look for your book. If you just Google blockchain and the law on the internet, it's on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on hardcover or whatever. Um, if you go to DowStack.io, uh, I believe, you can check out DowStack. Um, and uh, Primavera is also on Twitter at uh, YA, what is it again? <laughs> what is your Twitter? Y-A-O-E-O. <laughs> what is that from, by the way? Um, okay. <laughs> some kind of deep I hope it's not a bad reason um, so you can find her on Twitter there no, no. And, and I would say that um, for me personally I've read a couple of a bunch of various blockchain books and this blockchain the law book honestly was I mean if you're thinking about um, it's not just for lawyers like I don't find myself in the kind of law space very often but when you just think about law it allows you to unbox a lot of these kind of interesting um, aspects of blockchains. And I think that uh, Prima Bear and Aaron do a really good job of it. And so it's kind of more at the intermediate level, more at the kind of pattern matching from history and Lawrence Lessig kind of level. Um, so I would definitely recommend it to my listeners. Um, and one final note is if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash Rieslandmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Um, or you can do so on staketree.com slash Rieslandmark as well. And with that, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>